Okay. The chassis of my discourse this morning is based on a piece that I read. I added some things and I subtracted some things and I conformed it for today's purpose. So it's not completely mine, but it's mine. <laughs> I want to read first uh, from Acts 11, and I'm going to be in Acts quite a bit. Some of the uh, scripture I'm just going to comment on, and then there'll be others that if you want to follow along when I read, I'll let you know you can follow along. First, I want to read from Acts uh, chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. <clears throat> now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyrus, Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many of the people who were added to the Lord. So Barnabas uh, went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year there they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. It, in Antioch, they were first called Christians. And when I was, when I was studying, putting this lesson together, I was kind of surprised that the word Christian is only used three times in the Holy Scripture. That's the main descriptor that we use to describe ourselves. It's only been, it's only been used three times in the Holy Scripture. It's mentioned in the passage that I just read. It's also mentioned in Acts 26 and 28. That's the discourse uh, concerning King Agrippa. Uh, and it's also mentioned in 1 Peter 14, 16, which addresses faithful suffering. Now, the word Christian from my studies is often assumed that the name is, was given in a flippant, kind of derisive kind of manner. Uh, kind of like little Christ, little Christians or little Christ. Um, technically, the I-A-N at the end of Christian means belonging to the party of. So the word Christian actually means uh, those of the party of Jesus, or those of Jesus' party. Uh, so Christ, the word Christian is an adopted title. Um, the believers, the early believers, refer to themselves as saints most of the time. And today Christians have many diverse titles. Uh, Catholic, which means universal. Orthodox, that's conservative or traditional. There's Protestant, that means to protest or dissent. Also, we have names that people use today because they're adherent to uh, 
particular people, like John Calvin, and they called themselves Calvinists, or Martin Luther, and they called themselves Lutherans. Some might be adherent to uh, particular ways or methods, like baptism, Baptists, or various methods, Methodists. And then we have the word evangelical. Well, in the Greek, there's a word called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's euangela. It's spelled E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. And it's the Greek word for evangelical. And really it means good news or gospel. Um, those committed to the Christian gospel message. The root word for evangelical is used in the New Testament uh, to distinguish Jesus's good news from the good news of the Roman Empire's military victories. Okay. But how does God identify his church? We have all these other kind of titles and words that people use and descriptors that people use to identify themselves as Christians, why I'm this type of Christian, or I'm that type of Christian, I'm this or that. But how does God identify his church? And how do we, in turn, identify the church? Well, in Romans 16, 16, it talks about the church of Christ. And that simply means the called out of Christ, or the assembly of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, it talks about the church of God. And it means the call out of God, or the assembly of God. In Ephesians 1 verse 23, it talks about the body of Christ. In Colossians 1 verse 13, the kingdom of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, the temple of God. Now, none of these are formal names. They're descriptors. It's describing people. Okay? Um, like the church is lowercase. Of course, Christ is, is uppercase. Um, God uses another identifier that's rarely used, if ever. I, I don't hear it that often. In Acts 9.2, <clears throat> it mentions something called the way. And in Acts 22, verse 4, it says, I saw, it doesn't say Saul, but it's talking about Saul. It says, I persecuted this way to the death. In Acts 19.9, the scriptures tell us that hardened unbelievers spoke evil of the way. Acts 19.23 reports that there rose a great commotion about the way. And in Acts 24.14, Paul confesses to worshiping God according to the way. 
and in Acts 4.22, the governor Felix is said to have gained accurate knowledge about the way. So what is this way that the scriptures are talking about? The way or this way. Why was it persecuted to the death? Why did persons talk evil about it? Why did it cause riots? Why did Felix pursue a more accurate knowledge of it? And why did Paul confess to worshiping God according to it? That's why I want to investigate a little bit this morning. Now, Jesus made comparisons concerning the way. Um, in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he talks about, if you remember, <clears throat> The narrow and wide gates leading to the way of life or to the way of destruction. Jesus himself informed us that he was the way. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the way is a natural path to God or a natural path to the Father. In fact, in the Greek, there's a word called Hodu, and I, and like this, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it's H-O-D-O, Hodu. And it's the word for the way in the scripture. It simply means a natural path. So the way is the natural path to God, a natural path to the Father. And the descriptor of the way was a part of Jesus' personal vernacular. He used it quite a bit. So it's something he commonly used when he was talking. The act of salvation in Acts sixteen seventeen. These men were servants of the most high God who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. So the way was an act of salvation. In Acts eighteen, twenty five and twenty six. I want to read that. He had been instructed instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he he knew only the baptism of John he began to speak boldly in the synagogue but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately so the way is instructed and it's approved by God. Priscilla and Aquila uh, here taught the way, and they taught it accurately. Early followers of Jesus saw themselves as the true way, Um, both in life, the way they conducted themselves in life, the way they walked, and we were talking about that a little bit this morning in our Bible class about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's how you conduct yourself in your daily life. Okay, that's working out your salvation. So they saw themselves in that way. They also saw it in doctrine, okay, the teaching. So they understood the teaching, and they took the teaching, and they made it practical in their lives. They were followers of the way. 
the way of thinking, so to speak. It was ingrained into them. Now, James earlier read uh, Acts 2, uh, verses 22-28. It talks about Jesus and Jesus being the way. Okay? And how is Jesus the way? How did they look at Jesus? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. So how was Jesus the way? How was he the truth? Um, well, Jesus was the way to God. In John 14, 6, and in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, it explains that Jesus is the solitary way to God. He's the only way, the only true way to God. In Ephesians 2.18, it says, Through him we have a direct way of approach in one spirit to the Father. We're saying that Jesus is the only way. He's the direct way to God, the Father. But Jesus is the way of truth. In John 18.37, says Jesus came into the world to testify to truth. As a result of him teaching and validating the truth, we have the opportunity to know the truth. The truth regarding salvation, and we can be set free from our supplication to our transgressions. And this is explained in, in John 8, 32 through 36. So the truth is kind of like an architect. It's a renewing process that takes place within us. Um, as the truth is revealed in Jesus and his life is personified through him, uh, we are called to a renewal, a renewal in our own lives. Um, this is explained in uh, Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, which I want to read. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. As the truth in Jesus is put to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in, the true, in true righteousness and holiness. So here is basically telling us that the truth is an architect of a new renewing process that takes place. As the truth is revealed to us in Jesus, and it's personified in this life, I mean, he, he showed us, he walked a, a life and showed us. We are called into to be renewed in our, our own lives. So Jesus is the way, the truth. Jesus is also the way to life. Jesus came so we might have life and enjoy it abundantly. In John 10, 10 it says, have life and have it abundantly. So what does it mean to have life and have it abundantly? Well, life consists of love, life consists of joy, and life consists of peace. Those are the things that he wanted to bring to us. 
We remain in God's love by keeping his commandments and obeying his teaching. That pleases him. And we remain, remain in his love. That's what John 15.10 tells us. And in verse 11 of John 15, it says, I have told you these things so that my joy and delight may be in you and that your joy may be made full and complete and overflowing. So love and joy are all part of that abundant life. <clears throat> in John 14, 27, peace I have with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. And what he's saying here is, let my perfect peace calm you in every circumstance and give you courage and strength for every challenge. To me, that, that's a great description of, of, of peace. Because when you're not at peace, if your soul, if your spirit is not at peace, what's the opposite of that? You're always on edge. You're always worrying. Okay? But what he's saying here is, you know, let my peace calm you in every circumstance and give you courage and strength for every challenge. That's something that, I don't know, we don't have to do it on our own. We have God to help us in that way. We don't have to be afraid. Okay? We don't have to be paranoid. We don't have to always be looking over our shoulder or thinking that, you know, some sort of harm or gloom is going to, to, to fall upon us. But Jesus is the way of prayer. Jesus instructed us to, play, to pray diligently and humbly. Um, if you want to turn to Luke 11, the first 13 verses. <clears throat> now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which one of you has a friend who will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are in bed, with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you, can I get, not get up and give you anything? I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, it will be given to you Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What, the, what father among you, if his son asks you for a fish, will instead give him a fish, give instead of a fish a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask? 
So he's talking about prayer here at the beginning. And then he talks about being diligent. He combines that with being diligent. Pray, here's how you pray. But be diligent in prayer. Be diligent when you ask. Don't give up. Don't throw your hands up and say, well, you know, this is not going to happen for me. Jesus is our advocate and intercessor when we petition God. He serves as our high priest. And we know this from Hebrews uh, chapter 4. Verses 14 and 16, when he talks about, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then have confidence and draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our Tide of time of need. Um, and this was always, I mean, when I was a young Christian, when I first became a Christian, this was always very interesting to me that Jesus came to life as a human being and walked the earth as we did, went through the same temptations in a general sense that we went through, had to deal with those same temptations. And so, it says he's an intercessor when we petition God. It's because he's able to sympathize with us. He's able to empathize with us. He's gone through the same things that we've gone through. He's saying, okay, this is how you do this. Okay. This was different from the Levitical priests who were basically like the population. They were sinners just like the rest of the, the nation of Israel. The only difference was they were ritually, they had to be ritually clean before they could go and offer sacrifices and terms of forgiveness for the people. But Jesus was sinless. He lit, walked the same paths that we walk, and that's why he's able to sympathize with us. He walked in our shoes. Jesus is also the way of suffering. <clears throat> Jesus was born to suffer. And he had to suffer to enter his glory. And suffering uh, for us is, a, I think, kind of a different sort of scenario. Not, not for everybody, but, you know, Jesus, uh, there were people in Jesus' day who were very antagonistic towards him. He was a threat to the religious uh, standard of the day. Um, there were people there trying to bring him down. There were people there that knew, <clears throat> I'm, I'm confident, they knew who he was, but they didn't want to accept it, they didn't care. And they thought, they're, in a sense, that kind of thinking, you know, kind of shows me that they thought maybe they were a little bit stronger than God. Okay, that they were going to bring, going to bring God down. And that led to Jesus' suffering. We talked about this in, in, in class this morning too where Jesus emptied himself oh he became like a servant okay and I was also thinking in class a little bit even though Jesus emptied himself and became like a servant even on the level of servitude there's kind of a hierarchy okay 
<laughs> am I a better, I'm a better servant than you, or I deserve more than you. Okay? So Jesus emptied himself and became, as a servant, he probably became the lowest servant. Now think about that. So when we, when we were reading in Hebrews, we were, uh, to me what jumped out was the selfishness of people. God was saying, if you can get over your selfishness, if you can put yourself lower than the person sitting next to you, have more consideration towards them than you have towards yourself, you know, this is what I'm looking for. This is what, that's what, essentially what Jesus did. This is why he suffered. It didn't have to be that way. I mean, he didn't have to be that way in terms of his power, I should say. Like, scriptures say he could have called, what, 10,000 angels to change things, but he didn't because he submitted himself to, to the Father. And he suffered for it. So, we're called to follow his example, his way. That was part of Jesus' way. Um, the scriptures also teach us that we're blessed when we suffer. Okay? That's kind of hard for it sometimes for us to, to wrap our, our mind around that. We're going through some sort of hardship, but because of that hardship, somehow we're, we're blessed. And when we're going through it, depending on our maturity, uh, sometimes it's hard to understand. I think as you're more mature as a Christian, I think you begin to understand it better. And you begin to see that in the long run it's going to help you. If you come through on the other side of things, you understand that you're stronger for it, okay? And in that strength, you're able to pass that along to other people and help them be an example to them as Jesus was an example to us and be able to counsel and help other people. <clears throat> I think that's what the whole idea behind suffering, not just because, well, the scriptures say you have to suffer because you're a Christian, you know, you have to suffer. Not like Jesus, like you're born to suffer. He was born to suffer. Okay, yet there's a purpose, an overarching purpose in his suffering. Our suffering is for our growth. Jesus is also the way to glory. Jesus will one day be revealed in glory. It says that in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. And hopefully one day we will be revealed in his glory. That's Colossians 3, verse 4. So, I talked about the different labels that we've given ourselves to describe ourselves as holy people or as you know, Christians. Okay? Whether it be because some follow individual doctrines, people, or because we follow methods or, you know, different things. We feel because we, we were baptizers and we should call ourselves Baptists, things like that. Um, or just some of the descriptions that the scriptures uh, approve. 
like Church of Christ, Church of God, okay, the body of Christ or the temple of Christ, okay, those are all approved. But like I said, they're not uh, proper names, they're descriptors, okay. But really, we're the people of the way. We're the people of the way. We're the people of Jesus' way. Jesus is the way. Um, the way is a, scripture, is a scriptural appointment. The way is taught by Jesus. Jesus is the way to truth, and he's the way to life. He's the way of prayer. He's the way of service. And he's the way of righteous suffering. He's our example in those areas. He's our advocate. He's our pathway. It's a natural path to God, um, the way to God. So I just wanted you to kind of think about those thoughts, um, how we can look at ourselves as, as, as Christian people.